Welcome to Off Message. I'm Isaac Dover. The last few days have been all about Syria. Our guest this week is Elliot Abrams, who is a senior fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. But if things had turned out a little bit differently, he would have been the number two at the State Department under Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. That's the job that he wanted. That's a job that he tried to get. Instead, Trump nixed him. And we talked about that, including the interview for the job in the Oval Office that he thought he was going to have, but ended up not being quite that. His advice to other people who, like him, were critical of Trump during the campaign, are not fully bought in to Trump as president and what they should do when they're thinking about whether they should seek jobs in the administration. But mostly we talked about Syria. We talked about the possibility of mission creep. What a success is. How do you define that? And what any of this means for trying to figure out what Trump's foreign policy is, given how quickly he has changed on the issue of Syria itself. But first, a new thing that we're trying here on the podcast, we're going to have a rotating group of some of my colleagues at Politico talking through their take on what's going on in the news, stories that they're working on that relate to what we're talking about with the interview guest each week. And starting up uh, this week, no better person to talk about Syria than Michael Crowley, who's the senior foreign affairs correspondent for Politico and has written a lot about this long before there were any missiles that hit Syria, but also wrote about it in the time since, including talking to some of the former Obama administration officials like people around John Kerry who are really supportive, strangely, of what President Trump did. And I say that strangely not because it's so strange, it's a consistent policy view, but because they're having trouble reconciling this in their own minds. I want to remind everybody to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And follow me on Twitter at Isaac Dover or on Facebook. Email me. Let me know your thoughts and suggestions. It's Isaac at Politico.com. I-S-A-A-C at Politico.com. And now, Michael Crowley. So what's going to happen? How do you see this playing out? What's the end game in Syria? Well, I think it's impossible to predict the end game because this is maybe the most complicated foreign policy challenge um, in any of our lifetimes. Uh, I mean, the best guess right now is more. Wait, Syria is more more complicated than anything else. In our... I, I yeah, I think so. Why? I mean, if you look at the number of actors in the country, uh, outside powers who have hands in this, there's the U.S., there's Iran, there's Russia. Uh, the Gulf Arabs, like the Saudis and the Emiratis, there's Turkey. And then inside of Syria, you have the regime, you have moderate rebels, you have Al-Qaeda, you have ISIS. Um, there's a lot of confusion about just what's happening on the ground. Then you throw in refugees um, and now chemical weapons, uh, on and on it goes. Uh, my best guess is, uh, or I, I would say one thing that is safe to say is that this is going to be a long, ugly, difficult slog that continues for months or years. We're not, this is not some turning point where there's about to be a breakthrough and we have some tidy resolution. I, I did a, a television interview and somebody asked me, so what does this tell us about Trump's foreign policy now? Uh, and I said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, do you have a sense of what the answer to that question is? I, I, it just seems like, Trump's foreign policy three days ago is different from what it, it right. was a day ago, yeah. uh, and uh, and who knows what it'll be in two days, right? Right. I mean, I think that it's fair to say right now that the, the to me the safest assumption you can make about Trump, you know, if you have a grand statement like what is Trump's foreign policy, it's that 
whatever he feels like doing that day, he's going to do. I mean, this guy has been talking for years about staying out of Syria, leaving Assad alone. Our enemy is ISIS, not Assad. Uh, Assad is actually helping us fight ISIS in his in his uh, view of it. So leave Assad alone, focus on ISIS, do a deal with Russia, uh, and 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 that's what really matters is is that you fight is that you fight Islamic State. Um, through that all, and and then when Obama was going to do something very similar in 2013, Trump was trashing him and saying it was really and stupid. not just Trump, right? Like I, all this, the I, I did an article about this uh, right off of the the Trump speech, and all of a sudden you'd had uh, Republicans who said that no way they felt very uncomfortable about uh, voting for the authorization mm-hmm. in 2013, you know, and th- those people saying this is a great idea, we're yeah. totally for it. Um, yeah. And look, <laughs> a lot of things have changed in the time since, but one of them is that we have a different president and yeah. uh, Republicans who seem more willing to back him. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think you'll always see Republican. You know, members of Congress are always going to flip flop a little bit depending on what party is in power. But what strikes me when we talk about Trump is that he laid out what for him was a pretty consistent vision. I mean, he's all over the map on a lot of things. But as a candidate, and even before he went into office, he had this pretty consistent vision, which was like dictators are fine. It's not our problem to knock them out of power. You usually get something worse. Uh, never really seemed to care about human rights. Terrible atrocities around the world. Just had no interest in it. And suddenly. He's like uh, John McCain, uh, some neoconservative. But not because he had uh, – he spent a lot of time reading military treatises or the intelligence reports. The White House staff said pretty clearly that what happened here is that he saw these pictures and he was really affected by the pictures. And the pictures are really affecting, Mm -hmm. but it's not – (laughs) <laughs> it's not the development of a new sensibility. It seems like it. It that's is right. that like immediate thing that's happening. It, it, it's the sort of pure freak coincidence of he's got the tube on and the remote in his hand at the moment when these pictures come on. But you know, I, I, and look, I, I would say that my sympathetic response to that is if you're sitting behind the desk and a bunch of innocent children are gassed, it's kind, it's on your watch in a right. certain way. It's on you. What am I going to do about it? And when it's someone else. Sort of easy to throw spitballs, but the flip side is, you you can you don't have to have had your television on very much the last few years to see a lot of horribly maimed and dead children in Syria, including in 2013 when there was a chemical attack that killed something like ten times as many people yeah, as like were killed in this one. Right? Yeah, yeah, so uh, it's just very strange and selective and just totally sort of illogical for him to react to this one event. We spent a lot of time during the Obama presidency trying to pin down what the Obama doctrine was, and it was like a useless exercise, yeah. right? And it, it ultimately boiled down to don't do stupid shit, as he yeah. put it, yeah. <laughs> right. at one point, uh, in an off-the-record way, but then it came out that he said it uh, right. to those reporters. Um, it seems like trying to pin down a Trump doctrine will be even more pointless. Again, what I saw happen this week was that Trump essentially flushed away 18 months or, if you want to go farther back, years of a foreign policy vision that was somewhat consistent and coherent. Um, just threw it out the window, flushed it down, whatever you want to say. And and he's using rhetoric now that you could have heard from Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, Hillary Clinton. America has a special responsibility in the world. Uh, you know, we're going to enforce international norms. This is a moral outrage. All these things he didn't care about. So yeah. uh, the ter- and that, to me, that the Trump weird, like, right God now, bless America and the world. And the world. I mean, this sort of internationalism. So to me, the Trump doctrine right now is flip a coin or roll a <laughs> die and see what number comes up because clearly – 
the past is not prologue. There's actually no way you can predict what's going to happen next by any traditional measure. And you've been talking to some people uh, who worked for Obama who wanted to go ahead with that authorization in 2013 to get uh, strikes going in Syria. Part of the reason that they wanted that was because they didn't want, just in case anything that went wrong, uh, to be the only ones responsible for it, that it would only be Obama. Uh, People like Ben Rhodes, who is Deputy National Security Advisor, Obama's uh, basically closest advisor on foreign policy, <laughs> famously described himself at one point as he didn't know where he ended and the president began. Um, <laughs> uh, and he's been taking a lot of shots at Trump uh, nonstop on Twitter since the election, basically, uh, or since the inauguration, I guess I should say. Where people like him and other Obama people who wanted this to happen, must, their brains must be going crazy. They're, they're, they're kind of freaking out. Now, Ben, I put in a different category from some other people I've spoken to who are pretty open about saying they wish that Obama had taken military action against Assad and they are you know, implicitly or explicitly critical of Obama and say that they think he did the wrong thing. Ben is not there. Ben is still you know, in the step ben with Rhodes the president. And, you know, <laughs> so, so two different questions there. I mean, quickly, I'll break it down. You know, the response you'll get from Ben and the people who think that Obama played it right is um, it's way too early to judge this. On some level, it might be, of course, it's sort of emotionally satisfying to see uh, Bashar Assad get punched in the nose because he's kind of a despicable war criminal. And who wouldn't be uh, in favor of that in the sort of short term morning after? But the question is, what's going to happen down the road? Does Trump have any plan? How do the various actors in this conflict, notably including Russia, Iran, and Assad himself, respond? And if they escalate, is Trump going to escalate? And if he doesn't escalate, um, then he's backing down and losing face. And there are a lot of ways this, this can spiral out of control in a bad way. So this is the sort of uh, optimal moment for Trump right now. Anyone, as I, you know, as a lot of people said to me today, it's easy to fire a bunch of cruise missiles. We know they work. They find their target. You blow the thing up you wanted to. What's hard is what is about to happen. If Trump is fortunate, the other sides will back down and his prediction will be right. And he may come off looking pretty good. But if things start to get more complicated, he's got a lot of tough decisions to make. There are the second pool of people who I think sort of feel like, this is what we always should have done. They also predict that there will not be a big escalation, that it will not be that complicated. Yeah. And I think they kind of feel like Trump is this really weird, unlikely savior. We're psyched that he did this, but we think he's <laughs> despicable. So they're kind of tied up in an emotional, uh, uh, psychological like, But they like, I like it, but I don't trust him. <laughs> it's all that's going on among the Obama people. Yeah, like yeah. That. I mean, it's this mix of, you know, kind of just personal dislike and also I think substantive concern that he hasn't really thought it through but they can't pretend that there's not this way in which they were sort of you know at least uh, metaphorically sort of high-fiving when when the missiles landed. <laughs> Obama went Z prime or whatever. <laughs> uh, how far down that road does Trump go? Look again what how can we predict anything about Donald Trump at this point yeah. based on the but fact? But do you get the sense and, and, and uh, that he is really gaming it out at all on this or that there – I mean it seems like Mattis was right. – uh, that's Here, what a general does, yeah. right? Like, Well, and, and I would say H.R. McMaster, his yeah. national security advisor – um, is a sort of he's like a famous uh, strategist. He's really mm -hmm. um, a junkie for military strategy theory and and has talked about like forward thinking. So I think that when we say like what is Trump thinking, what is Trump's plan? You know, some of this is Trump, but I really think it's like these guys a level below him who are very responsible, who studied this stuff a lot. So I you know I think they are thinking this through. 
Um, I would be really surprised if they were prepared to get deeply involved, that if, if Russia and Syria further escalate, for example, if Syria mounts this like incredibly intense conventional artillery or barrel bomb offensive on civilians and kills a lot more kids as a kind of FU to Trump, um, you know, that's the kind of provocation where it's not another chemical attack, but what do you do? And I think those guys are probably gaming this sort of thing out, but I would be surprised if they are going to be counter-responding over and over and over again, because I just, it really flies in the face of, again, Trump, you know, violated everything he said in the campaign. It really flies in the face of what he said he would do, however, to, to escalate any deeper. And he says he doesn't want to. All right, Michael Crowley. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's Michael Crowley, senior foreign affairs correspondent for Politico. Now let's go to our conversation with Elliot Abrams. We caught up with him in his home in the D.C. suburbs in Virginia, talked about is Trump right that Syria is all Obama's fault, that that chemical attack really can be blamed on Obama? Uh, and we talked about Steve Bannon and whether the criticism of Steve Bannon, whom many people saw as the reason for Abrams not getting that job at the State Department that he wanted, is the right person to have around President Trump. He called uh, Bannon a bad influence on Trump. And uh, you'll hear what he said when I asked him, so should Steve Bannon be out of the White House? Here's Elliot Abrams. So let's say you're Deputy uh, Secretary of State right now. What do you think you would be doing? What needs to be happening right now uh, within the administration as we look forward to uh, whatever's ahead in Syria? You'd be doing a lot of options papers, or you should be. Um, For example, are we instantly prepared if he uses chemical weapons again. The harder question, what if he doesn't ever use chemical weapons again? He just uses the famous uh, bombs that uh, kill even more people because, in fact, many more people have been killed by artillery on um, apartment houses, for example, and hospitals. What if he just does that? Right. Um, that you need an options paper, but ultimately, obviously, the president's going to have to decide how far do I want to go with this? Presumably, you're also thinking, and uh, it's clear from some of the things that Secretary Tillerson has said about the end game. Mm-hmm. Um, are we looking for a negotiation? What kind of negotiation? Uh, so that's, I mean, that's the purpose of the Deputies Committee, really, is to do this kind of laying out of options, which then goes upstairs to the principals who kick it around for a while before they in theory anyway, before they discuss it with the president. What do you mean in theory? (laughs) Well, partly things can just move too fast. I mean, for example, this is what you ought to be doing now. But what if today um, there's another kind of horrendous Assad attack and 300 people are killed? Yeah, You don't have time for options papers. You you have a meeting and everybody talks it through. And that was part of the... the, uh, as members of Congress were caught trying to figure out where they were on the strikes and not getting authorization from Congress, given what happened in 2013 when uh, that whole episode happened with Obama, that was one of the things that like Bob Corker has said is that he was glad that the president did move quickly, that there wasn't time to, to wait to, to go through the whole congressional process. Uh, but it seems like we could be in that situation again, on the one hand. On the other hand, it's been 
four years since we've had this kind of a gas attack, right? Or three and a half years. Well, I don't think we've had a sarin attack in a while, but we have had chlorine gas attacks and a lot of them. And by the way, that's another question for for the the options papers or for the Chlorine versus sarin. Yeah, I mean, my own view is it's a gas attack if it's chlorine. So I don't think, personally, I don't think that's a um, much of an issue. But um, I thought it was actually really wonderful that Xi Jinping was in Florida right now. That was a great excuse for doing nothing. Oh, we have to wait till Xi Jinping leaves. The other great excuse for But they them, didn't, right? I mean, they, they, he ordered the airstrike before dinner is the way that right. we've been right. told it. And then it, he tells uh, Xi about it at dinner. And right. So. Uh, which was, I thought, terrific because there are always a million excuses for doing nothing. Um, we're going to have a, a war with Russia if we do this, which, you know, we're, this will escalate forever. And I was very happy that um, the president didn't do, frankly, what Obama did, which was to analyze endlessly and think about all the risks and never do anything. And the problem with that is that doing nothing is a really consequential choice right. and has enormous impact. What do you make of Trump changing his position so radically on this and does it does it matter right it, people always change their positions it's like the most dangerous thing in politics is to be called a flip-flopper on the one hand on the other hand we want politicians to evolve <laughs> and officials to evolve and have their thinking shaped by things but he was pretty clear through uh, the campaign that he thought going into Syria was a bad idea we had up until days before the strikes uh, Tillerson ambassador Haley saying we don't want regime change, and then all of a sudden we are shifted into this. Is that I, I, like is that an issue yeah, at all? I'm not sure they said they didn't want regime change. They said it wasn't. Is it wasn't priori- right. It wasn't, it wasn't priority. It wasn't realistic. You're right. You know, first, I mean, y- your point is right that that you don't want a president who never changes his mind. And one of the criticisms of Trump was, you know, he'll never change his mind. He'll never look at the facts. He'll never. Well, that turned out to be wrong. I think you know there was always a conflict inherent in. Um, that line about not getting involved in all these things on the one hand and make America great again on the other. Because making America great, to me, is going to require some involvement around the world. I I wrote a piece last week in which I said it wasn't just that he took on the role of commander-in-chief when he ordered that strike. He also took on the role of leader of the free world because what was really striking, he talked about, you know, if if justice can prevail, um, then... Uh, it's because of America. Really, th- those aren't the exact words, but it was it was a remarkable appeal to America's global role. In, in his explanation, Secretary Tillerson talked about how we we had to enforce this no chemical warfare idea for the international community on behalf of the international community. Wow, <laughs> I mean that was not what uh, the president was saying in the previous year. Yeah. So to me, he kind of, well, Ariel Sharon used to say when he was prime minister, famous line, what you see from here is not what you see from there. Meaning, what you see as prime minister is different from what you see as a general or a, or a member of the uh, parliament or a politician or an editor. Um, and, and Obama is, used to say that too about his evolving take on how to use the military or drone strikes or those sorts right. of things, right? Right. Um, when people say, oh, well, you're killing quite a lot of people with drones. Well, <laughs> and, and, and Trump used a word 
in the days leading up, you use the word responsibility. Mm-hmm. I have the responsibility. I know I have the responsibility. So to me, this is, this is sort of being president. And this is realizing um, um, there is an American role here that is um, impossible to replace. Russians on the wrong side of this, yeah. Chinese aren't going to do anything. The Europeans can't do anything. It's us. Now, he did not become a neocon overnight. I think we can rest assured of this. But um, this could take him, uh, it seems to me, into a recognition that there are other places where there's an American role too. He's already made that very clear with respect to NATO, for example. Um, so I, th- I thought the change was, was really quite interesting. And the justification for doing what we were doing was not just national security. So does it, does it matter to, that we cannot say now, I think, in a clear way, what Donald Trump's foreign policy is because it was we had one set, sense of what it was before the serious strikes, and now this has complicated it. Does that uh, lack of uh, predictability, lack of uh, a clear sense of where it is matter in any bigger way, or is it just he's a new president, he's obviously you know never been uh, near this stuff in his career before taking office, right. and now he's learning a yeah. lot about it? Well, it matters. I mean, in the sense that um, allies depend on you, so they want to have some sense of what you're going to do and not do. Um, what you said is right. That is, this is the first president, remember, that we've ever had who had neither military nor governmental experience. So um, this is new to him, and he's finding his way. He he has a good cabinet, I think. Um, so we would want him to learn and develop his views over time, as he meets, for example, with Xi Jinping and right. other leaders, as the King of Jordan talks to him, he learns something. As Theresa May talks to him, he learns something. Um, you know, look, George W. Bush, for whom I worked, ran for office as governor of Texas against nation building and all that stuff. He criticized <laughs> Gore on it during the debates, and he swung quite a bit after 9-11. Um, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. You it creates troubles for people who are trying to figure out what we're going to do. But the alternative, which is you never learn anything, you never change, <laughs> is not good. It sounds like you basically agree with Trump in when he it, it, he said, and, and the press secretary said, that this is Obama's fault, right? If Obama hadn't done more, do. then... Uh, I wonder what you make of them. That was the, the initial response, was... This is Obama's fault. The first statement, and making that as a the priority thing that they said. It was the first thing that Sean Spicer said, and then Trump put out a statement. It clearly was written by him. You can tell when there are statements that are written by Trump directly, just like you could tell with Obama. Like they very there are cadence things, they're wording mm-hmm. things, uh, and he said it's Obama's fault. Is that the kind of thing that just needs to be said, uh, or is it a distraction from? The, the larger issues to make it about that Obama versus Trump? I think it needs to be said once in a long while. I, uh, as a Republican, was always, and as somebody who worked for George W. Bush, was really unhappy that Obama kept saying it's all of George W.'s fault, look what I inherited. And he said it for eight I years. I always think that that inherited thing is so strange to me because they, these are people who spend at least two years of their lives running to get this job. And they say, well, I inherited this. And Obama used to say it all the time. Trump yep. said it. <laughs> I, said, I inherited I mean, the world is a I mean, mess. It, That's what I inherited. It, <laughs> so I'm, I'm basically with you. That is, 
you can say it every six months or something, just sort of remark in passing. Yeah. Think if they hadn't said it. Um, people would be saying it, other people, more important people would be saying it anyway, more important for this argument. That is to say, former Obama officials would be saying it now. So, you know, um, I would say point taken, drop it. One of the things that, that uh, Secretary Tillerson said was on on Thursday night after the strikes were public, he said, uh, you should not extrapolate that the strikes changed our policy or posture in Syria in any way. A lot of people thought that was a really weird comment. Um, does that make yeah. sense to you? No. <laughs> um, I mean, it certainly changes our posture in the sense that we've now said... Um, we will attack you if you use chemical weapons. Yeah. And obviously this is a, an, um, an increased involvement which we want to have some diplomatic impact. So if there's another yeah. negotiation, our, our side, as it were, is more powerful. Now, it certainly doesn't, um, well, change the policy. What was the policy? It's not clear to me. In my conversations with Tillerson, it seemed to me he had, I mean, He's the head of Exxon, right? And he goes into this in whatever it was, December, let's mm-hmm. say. Um, in my conversations with him, I found that anything that had been said to him was there. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, he uh, went through a long explanation of the Kurdish problem, um, uh, had no notes, just talking about Iraqi, Syrian, Turkish, mm-hmm. Kurds, Erdogan, how this all comes together. Now, clearly, that wasn't there when he was the head of Exxon. Right. And clearly, somebody <laughs> briefed him, and every single word was in his head. Mm-hmm. So um, I, you know, I can't from the outside see how this is working. That is, is he reading briefing papers? Is he having meetings? I don't know. I can tell you, though, it's getting in there, and it stays there. <laughs> uh, he's taken some heat, though, for, for, that, for, for that sense that he's not, that he's sort of detached from uh, the building uh, for not being more open to the press, for a sense that he's um, essentially out of the loop from the White House, that he's not uh, part of the direct decision-making process. Uh, yeah, I think that, that's not true. That's not and true. And I think the Syria yeah. part shows that. And I've read in the papers in the last few days that if you, you know, who's got weight with the president? Mm-hmm. Well, Mattis, Tillerson, Kushner, McMaster is gaining. So um, I think Tillerson is what is going to be, or is already, one of the, one of the heavyweights in the administration. Is this just learning curve stuff, figuring, people figuring out? Uh, I mean, a lot of people, right? Donald Trump has never been in the government before. Rex Tillerson has never right. been in the government before. Right. Uh, so uh, certainly neither of them really knew how a president and secretary of state right. relationship would work, yeah. how their own personal dynamic would work. I, right? And those who have been in, like, I think this is correct, Mattis, McMaster, um, have never been in a kind of Washington bureaucratic right. setup like this. So no, it's a yeah, big difference a, to be a general. There is a yeah. <laughs> and, and to be, there, it's true. And I, I think also that in the State Department, remember, there's nobody there in a sense but Rex Tillerson. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, Mattis doesn't have the OSD side, but he does have the JCS side. Mm-hmm. So that's all working fine. And when it comes to say attacking Syria, they're all there. All those guys are. <laughs> You know, uh, they none of them have left just because Barack Obama left. Um, for the State Department, of course, there's, I don't know, 25 top appointments, 6th floor and 7th floor, mm-hmm. that are vacant. And they're going to be vacant for a while because if you named people today, it takes a couple of months to get confirmed. So the most I can say is, look... Um, 
by the summer, I think everything should be in place. The building will be manned. I know there are problems now. I assume that when the top floors are, I don't know, are we allowed to say manned or let's say personed, um, but uh, I think Fully Republicans filled. can still say manned. <laughs> um, so uh, <laughs> it'll be better. What's your sense of Tillerson overall? I mean, he's, he's uh, in your uh, sense, better briefed, um, more up to speed than, uh, than maybe some people have assumed that he was. Um, his approach to the job, uh, his, uh, how he's uh, seeing what mm. the job of Secretary of State is himself and figuring that out, not just in the dynamic with, uh, with the president and the other principals. Um, what kind of job do you think he's doing? I think he is uh, doing a much better job than he's given credit for. The notion that, you know, the department is losing weight interagency, which was around a lot, I think will be, I think was not true. It'll be turned around. And again, I think getting, <clears throat> you know, the transmission belts really from the FSO staff to him are not working properly. And that, that'll come in the next couple of months. It's unfortunate that no assistant secretary has been named, for example. Yeah. I think he's making one mistake that probably comes from being the chairman of Exxon. <clears throat> if you're chairman of Exxon, you basically, <laughs> you hate the press. And you don't want to have anything to do with them. And all they are is trouble. Uh, they're not trouble for you personally, but they're trouble for Exxon. And it's also true that if you look at, uh, I, would, I would say, uh, John Kerry, Colin Powell, these were guys who had huge press coverage and were, they had at least initially great press coverage. They were popular guys. Um, and they were not, in my opinion, effective secretaries of state because they lost the relationship with the president in short time. Um, so it's not true that having lots of great press coverage makes you an effective secretary of state. The mistake, I think, is that the converse is not true. That is, that having... Zero press coverage or good press coverage <laughs> makes you an effective secretary. I wasn't expecting to endorse press coverage. No, I think, but I think, I'll take um, it. <laughs> I think it's, uh, you need it. And the reason you need it is you need it to magnify your influence in the White House, on the Hill, with foreign governments, in the press itself. Um, and, and he's not doing that. Uh, we're talking about the learning curve a little bit with Tillerson. I wonder, in that larger sense, since you've been in, uh, number of roles in previous administrations, uh, there is an obsession in the West Wing with leaks uh, right now uh, and a continuing obsession. Who's leaking? Who's how, how are they trying to screw us this way, that way? Is that something that you think they'll get over in time or is that just going to be part of... When you what? say there's a continuing obsession, I think in my... I mean, there are also continuing leaks. Yes, but I was... <laughs> well, that's true. I was going to say... Um, if you say continuing obsession, in my experience, it would have started in, you know, like 1970, and it's been continuing. Um, it's very hard to get over it. Yeah. Um, because these are your people. This is your team. And, uh, I mean, I, I've, I, I tell you one story. I, um, when I was at the NSC, I thought our Korea policy, that is to say the Bush-Korea policy, was a bad policy. It mm -hmm. was not going to work. Sadly, it didn't work. I mean, and, and so Obama inherited it, and now yeah. a new president inherits it. Um, 
And I was free in saying, you know, in the White House mess to friends and colleagues, um, it's not going to work, it's a bad policy. I don't know why the president's doing this. <laughs> and it leaked. And there was a post story saying there's a lot of, uh, inside, there's a lot of people who think this is a no good policy. Uh, Abrams, for example, this is no good policy. <laughs> and um, so the following day or that afternoon, I go into the Oval Office for something entirely unrelated. Because I don't do anything with North Korea. I was a Middle East guy. <laughs> I walk into the Oval Office and the president says, I'm not mad at you. And I thought, well, that's, you know, that's, that's good. good start. But it's I mean, better than the alternative. I had no idea what he was talking about. And he said, North Korea, I'm not mad at you because I know you weren't the leaker. Mm-hmm. You ought to be able to say to a colleague at the NSC, I like this policy, I don't like that policy, without reading about it in the Post. I know that wasn't you. Um, but he was very mad at whoever it was, because how can you, when you go to a meeting, mm-hmm. it's your people, uh, and they're leaking. So it, you never quite get over it, because you have to ask yourself, what's going on here? Yeah. I mean, I put my trust in people, and they talk to reporters without telling me, without asking permission, um, now, some of the leaks are not harmful, they're even helpful, and, and obviously some of them are instructed. Uh, but we're not talking about those. We're talking about the ones that hurt the president and the administration. I don't think you ever get over that. You know, some of the leaks, many of the leaks are, the ones you hate the most are the ones that have nothing to do with national security in one sense. Um, they're about the president has lost faith in Smith or Jones. Right. Um, then you get the shocking ones, which do have to do with national security. In a way, you, obviously, you hate those the most. And it's unbelievable. And you, you just, somebody actually told a reporter about that? Well, as someone who has gotten leaked information in the past, um, there's always an agenda behind a leak, right? Uh, and sure. so that's something that in itself is, is you need to sort of sort through right. but as a reporter, but and, and then as the consumer of uh, whatever reporting is done. Uh, so that adds like another layer to it. Not only is it uh, in your mind bad that, okay, some national security information has leaked, uh, but, uh, but why did the person do it? Are they trying to stop it? Are they trying to, right? Like that. And that creates, that, that's its own uh, set of work that needs to yep. go on, right? Yep. And by the way, I endorse leaking. But. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Let's put that on the record. I am not in favor of leaking. Um, it, it's, uh, and there's nothing you can do about it, by the way. I mean, I suppose every president has at one point or another said, find out who leaked that. Right. I can't remember a case where you found out who leaked it and said, okay, you're fired. I just don't remember a case like that. Yeah, I think that that seems like something that happens in the movies, and I don't. Uh, right, because you're telling a reporter, and the reporter's not going to divulge right. his or her source. Right. Do you, if things had turned out a different way, you would have been in the administration. Do you miss not being there? Is it, are you, is it weird to be uh, looking at this as now there's somebody who spent a lot of time thinking about the Middle East. It looks like we've got Syria uh, becoming a bigger issue than maybe we anticipated it being. Middle East stuff is going to be part of this administration's life in these early months. I wouldn't say it's weird because, I mean, I wasn't in the Clinton administration. I wasn't in the Obama administration. I spent a lot of time outside <laughs> watching. And, and um, secondly, this going in, which I was, of course, willing to do, uh, ruins your life in a way. I mean, uh, I have children. I have grandchildren. I have a dog. Um, and I was actually wondering, you know, when, when am I going to see my grandchildren again? 
And how am I going to take care of the dog? Mm-hmm. And what is life going to be like? You have no weekends, you know. Yeah. You, so from that point of view, life is certainly better always outside than inside. Uh, but you lose the opportunity to affect yeah. uh, policy. Which, but you wanted which, it. You, you came to that. To, when you thought it through, the, the ultimate decision was you wanted it. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so uh, what's a little strange is this. The feeling of um, envy of people who are in is greatest when everybody's in and you're not. Um, but that is not happening in the Trump administration, at least not yet, because so many, what do we want to call them, the Republican establishment, the Bush administration officials, Republican regulars, you know, um, are not in. In fact, very few are. We mentioned the fact there are six and seven floors at state. I mean, same thing at DOD. Uh, they're very, very slowly beginning to uh, choose people for those. Yeah. So as I look at my colleagues from the Bush administration, I can think offhand of one uh, who is, well, and soon there will be two who are going in um, out of dozens. So the more common experience of, again, I don't know what to call us, Bush veterans maybe, is not to be in. Yeah. What was your interview with Trump like? Uh, it wasn't an interview. Um, I um, more or less attended a Tillerson meeting Mm -hmm. uh, at which foreign policy was discussed. Uh, It was an hour-long meeting. I probably said... But in the Oval. In the Oval, yeah. I probably said 100 words. It was more the president uh, meeting me, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, Which you had never done before. Correct, correct. But it was not... I had anticipated a job interview, um, but it wasn't a job interview. What, would, what did you make up him up close uh, from somebody who has obviously been paying attention to him, as all of us have, uh, uh, <laughs> and as for the last almost two years of the, this presidential yeah. campaign being a real thing? Um, more, what can I, how can I put this? Uh, con- more, it's sort of quieter and more concentrating mm-hmm. on what was the substance of the meeting than you would see at a public rally or something. Yeah. Um, Tillerson, I mentioned the Kurds before. Tillerson did a briefing on the Kurdish issues uh, because the president was going to call Erdogan later Mm -hmm. that day or the next day. Um, It was a long briefing. Again, no notes, so it was all in his head, which was impressive. Um, And the president just sat and listened. Um, He didn't interrupt. Um, He he took it on, and and, we we then moved on to other questions because... Talk about China policy. There were some personnel questions that were raised, but it wasn't my meeting. It was it was Tillerson. Sure. Was he asking like in depth questions, or it was mostly listening to? It was mostly listening. It was mostly listening, which I thought was a good thing because there's a sort of view out there. You know, he never listens, but he he yeah. listened to Tillerson. But you go in at, like as you show up at the White House that day, you think you're going to have a job interview, or right? Um, so. And you left, and then what did you what did you say to Tillerson afterwards? <laughs> or like, well, I was a bit sur- no, I was a bit surprised that there had been no, if you will, personal question. Like, did Trump realize that you were of course in the room because you were under? Yeah, consider- yeah of yeah, course, right. of course. Uh, sure. <laughs> um, in fact, I've I've read in various newspapers that um, he thought I was Elliot Cohen. <laughs> um, oh. He didn't think I was Elliot Cohen. I mean, that's, that's a stupid, you know, a stupid thing. Um, no, I, I was surprised that there was not a job interview. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that um, 
that was a good thing um, because it meant it was sort of pro, pro forma. Right, it was done. But it turned out not to be a good thing in the sense that um, had it been a job interview in which he had said, here on my desk are all the mean things you said about me last year. How would you like to defend yourself? He, what I gather happened later would not have happened, which is, yeah. could not have happened, which is, as I am told the story, uh, obviously I wasn't a witness, which that Steve Bannon uh, took some of the stuff in and riled the president up and got him. Right. To that he hadn't, see, it's not that, that he hadn't the, seen. The, right. He the news seen. reports were not on his desk. Correct. For like, had right. he wanted to do the meeting then, but that it Right. At, people at the White House had all of this presidential personnel. Well, I mean, if you have Google, yeah. then you can have all of it, right? Right. And no, but I, <laughs> I mean, mean they, you, I sent them all of it. <laughs> so they had all of it. Wait, so you proactively said, okay, here, here's the things that you might have pr- problems with. Mm-hmm. I, I sent them everything I said and written. There was, I think, one article, but I had a few interviews. Um, But the president hadn't seen it. And so the first exposure apparently was Mm -hmm. via Bannon, whereas had we thought about this more, we might have Was that Bannon torpedoing you? Yeah. That's exactly what it was. (laughs) Yes. You know, I've said uh, in previous interviews, I mean, he was against my coming into the administration. I know this from November and December. So it wasn't shocking. But he had told a number of people that he had given up that campaign. Mm Mm-hmm. Which turned out not to be true. So what, <laughs> that he told people he had given up the campaign and it wasn't true. What is it? Uh, what's your take on Steve Bannon then? <laughs> <laughs> we, we, um, well, we have a lot of policy. The problem sometimes with a podcast is not being able to capture the look on your face, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not going to um, answer that. <laughs> um, but I'm just going to leave it that... Um, uh, it seems to me that he's not a good influence on the president. And when it comes to some of the greatest mistakes uh, the administration has made early on, uh, he's had a hand in them. That looks to you like Steve Bannon. Looks to me, but I'm on the outside. And, right. you know, one of the, look, one of the things that, that I do know from personal experience is things look very different on the inside. So sure. you never quite know. You never quite know about presidents. I mean, that's the one thing I would say also about I do say to people who ask me, should I go in? Yeah. Um, I had no idea about George Bush mm-hmm. before I went in. As I said, I was from McCain in 2000. I remember the first meeting I went to in the Oval. It was about immigration policy. Mm-hmm. And everybody understood that Bush wasn't really running anything. Anyway, it was Cheney. Cheney was kind of the prime minister. Right. He was really running everything. So I go into this meeting in the Oval. And John Ashcroft was attorney general, and he started, as, as I remember it, by saying, um, Mr. President, we're here to discuss immigration policy. And the first thing we want to, Bush interrupted him <clears throat> in mid-sentence. And it was very clear throughout, it was about an hour, there was one president. And Cheney interjected, as did mm-hmm. cabinet members. There was no question who was in charge of this business about Cheney's really the brain here, the prime minister. Total nonsense. You would have really no way of knowing that on the outside. And so I would say that about Trump too. That is that it's not really knowable on the outside. What, particularly in the case of someone who hasn't been in the government before, hasn't been a governor, let's say, what is he like on January 20th? Already, I think you'd say he's going to be different April 20th. Mm -hmm. What's he going to be like by Labor Day when he's got, you know, period one, let's say, as president in place, and the government's in place. Um, Well, maybe Jared Kushner knows because he knows the man intimately. But for the rest of us, 
uh, you know, we're just guessing. I, I want to come back to Kushner, actually, but uh, I take it you don't think it's a bad thing that Bannon is no longer on the National Security Council. Well, you know, look, <laughs> again, I was, I'm a veteran of the George W. Bush yeah. administration. He made it crystal clear on day one that Karl Rove was never, mm-hmm. ever, 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 ever to get near any foreign policy issue and stay out of the situation room. And he did. Um, so I thought it was a terrible mistake to put him on the NSC to begin with. And even if you say, no, no, but his role is really larger, yeah. um, I would say, yeah, but I would say, don't do it anyway. Do yeah. not do this because you're going to get the reaction that you got. The argument that some people made after he was removed was, okay, well, that just means that he'll make his case to the president in the Oval Office by himself and not part of the NSC with everybody else there. Uh, so that it, in fact, might empower him more to have the influence over the president. I don't, I don't think that's true. Yeah. Because once the process starts working, <clears throat> what's going to happen? Um, Jared Kushner and McMaster, probably already is happening, are going to go into the president, maybe with Tillerson, maybe with Mattis yeah. or Pompeo, and say, we've had long talks about this. We just had a, uh, a meeting. We've looked at all the papers. Talk it through with him. It's very unlikely that that it seems to me that that Bannon or anyone else can walk in later and say, mm-hmm. "I'm smarter than everyone, and I have new ideas." And you forget about all that junk you get from. Well, he has a very clearly defined worldview, and he has clearly uh, gotten Trump to buy into it. In uh, in some cases, uh, this is a question now of whether because other people are, you know, you didn't have uh, Mattis or Tillerson or all these people around during the campaign. Bannon was. Uh, so maybe that, maybe because he's, uh, Trump's coming into the job as president and understanding all those things. Uh, or maybe because Bannon is being sidelined, he'll have smaller influence. But it does seem like uh, there is a, a, Bannon saw Trump as a vehicle for his worldview. That, and it's this worldview that you think is bad. Right. I agree with that description. I think yeah. that's quite right. And, you know, again, if you were Donald Trump, you're now running for president and you have no foreign policy experience, yeah. no government experience. Here comes someone who's very smart and has a coherent worldview, aspects of which you share. I mean, aspects of which I share. Yeah. Um, but um, it helps. It helps a lot. Now you're president. You don't really need him as much because... Yeah. First of all, there are, you know, events, dear fellow, events that yeah. are making you um, do things or, or, or confront things. Yeah. Um, and you've got all these people around, uh, not only uh, Jared, but you've got people that you've chosen because you really like them and admire them. In the case of McMaster, for example, it's a new friend. Yeah. But I think it's pretty clear he's going to come. Would and, you kick Bannon out of the, the White House? <laughs> <laughs> you want me to make personnel choices for the president. I mean, if you think I, uh, he's a bad influence on the president, don't you think he should be gone? Uh, I will refrain from answering that question. <laughs> what about Jared Kushner? Uh, the the uh, sort of general critique on him is he's never, also never been anywhere near any of these issues before um, and seems to be involved in everything he's going to uh, by the White House is telling, be the point person on China, be the person who solves Middle East peace, the White House Office of Innovation. Uh, he's the point person with the Mexican president, which obviously will be theoretically a big issue if we build that border wall. Uh, it's a long, long list. Um, is he 
is he in over his head or is he is he the right person to be around uh, if Bannon's not the right person to be around the president? Well, my beef with Bannon is I simply don't agree with him on, yeah. on the fundamental sort of ideological outlook and the policy choices that ensue. I have had only a few meetings with Jared. I'm a, a big fan. Mm-hmm. I don't view him at all as an empire builder. That wasn't my experience. He's the person the president trusted most. Um, you know, when this is all over, um, everybody's going to leave and he isn't going to see the president. isn't going to see these people much anymore, except Jared. Jared is someone who's... And Ivanka Trump is also. Right. right? Um, <laughs> but of all be, the people who have offices in the West Wing. Right. right? They're going to be with him the rest of his life. Yeah. That's a special um, relationship. I think that all of this, um, in a sense, fell on Jared because everyone understood the relationship. You're the ambassador of France, England, uh, China, whatever. Um, You know for sure that he sees the president 10 times a day. He's in the White House. And not only can you send messages, but when he tells you the president thinks X, you are really confident. Right. Well, that was with the trip to Iraq, right? People thought, oh, what is General Dunford doing taking Jared Kushner to Iraq? Well, General Dunford was realizing that Jared Kushner is the most influential advisor in the West Wing. And whether he likes it or doesn't like it or thinks it's a good idea or a bad idea, it's true. And so (laughs) you might as well have that person see up close what we're talking about with Iraq. Now, I do think that, um, as I understand it, Jared does not have much of a staff. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and this is really falling on him personally. <clears throat> and uh, it's too much for him to do, obviously, uh, for four years. Part of the problem, I think, or maybe it's not a problem, part of the circumstances mm-hmm. is that um, the administration is just starting to get together. Yeah. So it's, it's January 21st. It's day one. Uh, of course this falls on him because people, they, everybody, they don't know each other. Yeah. They have never worked together before. The president doesn't know who to trust and who to rely on and who's first rate. And you're on the outside now. And you, you're an ambassador, let's say, or a foreign minister. You also don't know. So I think, you know, this in most administrations, they kind of fumfer around for a few months until they figure it out. And they realize, oh, the national security advisor doesn't count. Or, Mm -hmm. oh, the secretary of state doesn't count. It works out over time. In this case, you had somebody who you knew counted. Right. Now, I would assume that that over the course of the year, he prioritizes mm-hmm. and says, well, I really can't do this, I yeah. really can't do that, but I really do want to do uh, C and D. Um, cause I, I, so I think this process is natural. Um, the idea that, that relatives do things, I mean, you know, one, Bobby Kennedy had responsibilities that went way beyond being attorney general. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, when... George H.W. Bush fired his chief of staff. Um, as I recall, the firing was actually done. The person who actually said, it's time for you to go, was George W. Bush, his son. Mm. So it's not, I mean, the role is not so... Right, I mean, but, but George having, W. Bush didn't have an office correct. in the West. Right? That's, right. What's, that's yes. what's new. Um, but I have to say, so far, it seems to be working pretty well. Yeah, so, so that... Uh, the the two the two big knocks are the nepotism knock right um, why is that a big knock I, I mean that people make against yeah, it. no okay. I'm that's that's right. not 
the, the complaints that people make about Kushner, right? Is, is that what you say is not an issue? And then the lack of experience thing, though, is, right? He's coming into all these things um, without that level of experience. But, of course, with such an important relationship with the president um, that it seems like nobody could uh, ever replicate. Um, so, And you don't think that they, his lack of experience on these issues is, is an issue either? Uh, I didn't see it. I mean, yeah. in my very limited exposure, I found that he was a good listener and that he was actually reaching out and asking questions. So I didn't, I, I did not, first of all, I didn't see him as an empire builder, but I also didn't see him as somebody, you know, we talked about the Middle East a little yeah. bit. I didn't see him at all as somebody who said, let me tell you how we should do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got, I've, I've been looking at this for years. I know everything it, not at all. So, yeah. yes, if you were that kind of personality, it would be a big problem. But I, I didn't see that at all. Uh, I want to uh, close on thinking about something. Uh, when you were in consideration to be Deputy, Deputy Secretary of State, uh, and uh, I think since then as I've continued to hear this, there were a bunch of people who you were like the great villain to them for a lot of years, right? <laughs> like between Iran-Contra, uh, the Iraq War, uh, and, uh, and what these people, I should say, they, 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 these are, uh, Republicans who didn't agree with those decisions or, uh, Democrats who thought, oh my God, he's the face of everything we think wrong with Republican foreign policy. And then they were like rooting for you. <laughs> um, uh, someone said to me, even, uh, not knowing that I was going to be talking to you, uh, as, the news of the strikes was happening on Thursday night. Somebody texted me and said, oh, well, you know, if only Elliot Abrams were there. <laughs> and this is that somebody is a, a very liberal Democrat. <laughs> what is that like going from being the villain in those minds to the heroes? Does it not like register in your life in any way? Do you feel, did you, that come across to you? <laughs> well, it, I mean, there's some truth with it in the sense that it's clear that, I mean, there were some Democrats, yeah. for example, when I was under consideration for deputy, who came out and said uh, nice things about me. Yeah. Uh, be good to have an experienced person, that sort yeah. of thing, which was gratifying. <laughs> um, and these, I assume some of these people are people who would have uh, never thought that you were someone that they would support beforehand. Well, I don't, you know, um, it depends how far left you go. Yeah. And by the way, the, the, on the right, Ron, mm-hmm. uh, Rand Paul wrote a fairly vicious yes, Rand Paul uh, against me, which... Not a, a fan in any situation. No, but from, a, from an ideological <laughs> point of view, this is comprehensible. Yeah. I mean, I'm sort of yes. a Cain Graham type. Yes. No, no. no. So, that's, and that's, that's what I think is so funny about this. It's not that people... Rand Paul is very consistent in his problems right. with you. Um, he, those, whatever, whoever the president was, he would not have wanted you near the government, right? Um, it's, it's but true. it's, it's like yet. liberal Democrats yeah. who... Right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I've been around Washington for a very long time, and... One of the problems here, um, I mean, you could do 50, 50 interviews about this, uh, is is the um, partisanship. Yeah. You know, I came to Washington to work for Scoop Jackson, mm-hmm. um, who um, was a partisan Democrat in many ways, but had lots of ties across uh, the party lines. Mm-hmm. I entered the Reagan administration as a Democrat. Reagan had been a Democrat. Reagan liked the idea of Democrats yeah. coming in. Um, it's gotten a lot worse. And one of the ways it's gotten worse is that people think the worst of each other. Yeah. So it's not, you know, uh, I, it's, it's, 
it's not that I disagree with you. It's that you are a bad person. You are a you right. are a not war monitor. Um, <laughs> not you personally, no. Um, even though you're a White House correspondent, I think we can still let you off the hook. Um, but it, it people personalize in ways that are um, yes. I don't think used to happen, you know, decades ago. But anyway. All right, Elliot Abrams. Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. <laughs>